The call to worship this morning comes from the book of Psalms and Psalm number 135. Psalm 135 and reading verses 1 through 7. Let us hear God's Word. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to His name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for Himself, Israel as His own possession. For I know that the Lord is great. And that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In heaven and on earth. In the seas and all the deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth. Who makes lightnings for the rain. And brings forth the wind from His storehouses. Amen. And so far, the reading of God's holy word. With one voice, let us now praise the name of our God as we join in singing hymn number 12, Exalt the Lord, His Praise Proclaim. If you're able, please stand to sing.
If you will, please remain standing and turn to number 254. Come Holy Spirit, come. 254. Please be seated. And now let us come to the Lord in prayer. Let us all pray. Almighty and eternal God, we come before you again this morning to take up the great exhortation of the psalmist, to praise you, to praise your great name, to praise you for who you are, the eternal triune, majestic God, the one who exists in all of the perfection of His being that is beyond our comprehension, to worship You for all that You have revealed Yourself to be, particularly as the psalmist speaks here this morning, O Lord, that 
You are great. You are above all gods. That you do what you please. You are sovereign over heaven and earth. That you are good. That you are gracious and merciful. Slow to anger. Abounding in loving kindness. And so, O Lord, in the knowledge of these things, we come to give you that which is your rightful due, the praise and the honor and the glory forever be yours, O Lord, and yours alone. Father, then we come to confess our sins, to acknowledge that in the presence of the three times holy God. We are those by nature who are not holy, that we are sinners in your sight. And so, O Lord, we come to confess our sins. We are thankful for the ministry of your Spirit of which we have sung in our hymns, the one that comes to convict us of sin and then lead us to a sufficient Savior, Jesus Christ, to lead us to one who is the great probation keeper of His people who fulfilled all righteousness for us, and to the one who paid in full the penalty price of our sins, even in His own blood upon the cross. And so, O Lord, in the knowledge of the great salvation which You have wrought in Him, we confess our sins, and knowing that as we do so, You are the God who forgives and cleanses from all unrighteousness. And so we pray, forgive us our sins. Forgive, O Lord, those words and thoughts and actions, things done, things left undone. Have mercy upon us for Christ's sake. And then, our Father, we do give you thanks for all of your goodness and mercy to us, in things temporal and spiritual. We are thankful for your providing of all of our needs in this past week and this very day. We are thankful for the rain that you continue to send in the winter season, for which we have prayed and you have answered, even according to your great mercy to us. And so, Lord, we do return our thanks this morning. We are thankful for your grace and your mercy, which sustains us. We thank You, O Lord, from the gift of faith by which, O Lord, we persevere by Your grace. Lord, we are grateful and we express and return our thanks for all of Your goodness and kindness toward us. Our Father, then we come with our prayers of petition and intercession. We come again to pray for this world in all of its need. We pray, O Lord, have mercy, restrain the hands of evil men, cause, O oh Lord, conflicts to cease. We pray for Your church in such difficult parts of the world where these things are daily the experience of all who live there. We pray that You would encourage them today, wherever they may be able to gather, whether they have a building or whether they're outside, whether they may be in ruins and rubble, wherever, O oh Lord, we pray, be with Your people as You have promised even where there may be only two or three gathered in Your name. And grant, O Lord, that having received the blessing of the presence of God and the 
assurance of His love in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Enable Your church, O Lord, then to be light in this darkness. Grant, O Lord, that they may be able to bring hope which is beyond the wisdom of men in this world, that they might bring such hope to many in despair, that they might bring hope, O Lord, to those who think they have lost everything and have nothing for which to live. Lord, grant that the great balm of Your gospel, even through the means of the testimony of Your church, both to the truth of the gospel and to its great reality in their lives, grant that You yet, O Lord, might bring many more this day, Your day, into Your kingdom. Father, we pray for our own nation. We ask, O Lord, that You'd have mercy upon us. We pray for our leaders at every branch, every level of government, even in days, O Lord, where there is great division, where there are many clamoring voices, even during the season of election, O Lord, in which these things are greatly amplified. Lord, have mercy upon us and grant that those who are presently in office and those who may desire office, Lord, for all such, whether they be candidates or involved by way of campaign, we ask that they might first and foremost acknowledge that You are sovereign over all things, that You bring those according to Your plan and purpose into office, and You remove those as and when You see fit. And so, Lord, we pray that You might give us godly leaders, those who would acknowledge You. But even in a time, O Lord, when many don't, we pray that You would give Your professing church grace to persevere, even in days that are difficult, even in days that may grow progressively darker, even before that great dawn when Your Son appears and, as it were, splits the skies with the brightness of His coming. Grant us to live in hope. Grant us to live by faith and not by sight. Father, we pray for all who serve in our communities, in our emergency services, our first responders. We are thankful for each uh, branch, as it were, for our fire departments, for our law uh, and uh, uh, enforcement uh, community, for our uh, medical community. We thank You for each one. We pray that You would be with those who are serving today, watch over them, protect them, grant them success in their endeavors. We pray for those on rest days that You would refresh them and grant them to be fit and ready to return to their duties and roster in the coming week. Father, then we pray for our own needs as they're represented here. Again, we give You thanks for the answers to our prayers, particularly for our own congregation. We thank You for hearing our prayers for baby Charlotte this past week and for preserving her life and bringing her through that recent surgery. We thank You, O Lord, for guiding the hands of the surgeon as we prayed. We thank You, O Lord, for the continual, uh, uh, continued care during her recovery in the hospital. Uh, we thank You for such means, O Lord, that You have granted in our day and time. We pray that You would continue to help her and sustain her in her recovery. And we pray that You would give much wisdom to the staff in the days that lie ahead and the next steps. 
We pray for Mark and Nicole and the children too and the extended family. We thank you for hearing their prayers and our prayers for this child. We pray that you'd continue to strengthen them as they walk through this trial. Grant them to have eyes upwards and forwards, even resting in the great grace of Jesus Christ. Continue to grant to them, we pray, the great peace of God, which passes all understanding. Father, then we continue to pray for others who are sick and sorrowing, whatever the particulars may be, you know, O Lord. For those who have ongoing and long-term health issues, for those who may be sick today, who have come down with various uh, viruses of the season, Lord, we do not have to tell you anything, as it were, to inform you of that which you don't know. But we come as you have commanded us, that we might present our petitions to you by way of acknowledgement of our total dependence upon you and knowing that this is the means that you have appointed and are pleased to use even to work your purpose to your great end of the glory of God and the great good even to which you work all things for your people. And so we present these petitions to you. Hear our prayers, we pray. Forgive our sins for Christ's sake. Amen. For the consecutive reading of God's Word in the New Testament, we turn again this morning to Luke's Gospel and chapter 3. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, commencing to read at verse 1 and reading through verse 20. Luke's Gospel, chapter 3, and verses 1 through 20. Would you please rise, if you are able, for the reading of God's holy Word. Luke chapter 3, and commencing to read at verse 1. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, Tetrarch of the region of Iterea, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all of the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. 
He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So, with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Amen. And so far the reading of God's holy word, please be seated. And now again, let us come to God in prayer. Let us all pray. Our Father in heaven, again, we pray for the ministry of the Holy Spirit as we would seek to hear aright your word proclaimed to us this morning. Be with preacher and hearers alike. And grant that your Spirit might come with great power, attending the word, even to the conviction and conversion of sinners, and even to the building up of the saints. Deliver us all from distractions, we pray, 
There's many thoughts that come into our minds, even concerning legitimate things at other places and times. Help us now to set all such aside and give our full attention even to Your great Word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Please now turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews and chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, and we're going to read verses 1 and 2. As you turn there, if you have been a regular attendee at our church prayer meeting, you will know that we have been working through this passage by way of devotion over a number of months. And uh, I want to say thank you to our brother Steve, who've led those devotions. Thank you, brother. And uh, has enabled us in a specific, detailed way to consider these uh, great Old Testament saints as they witnessed to the truth of the revelation of God they had received, and so by still witness to us today of uh, the great work of God that they received and believed, and that we are to do as well. And so, as we come to this chapter within the consecutive exposition of the whole book, then um, we have opportunity again to see how God works consistently in the lives of His people, both under the Old Covenant and New Covenant, as He brings the great promise of what are called the unseen things, but the great real things that were brought to full and complete fruition in the coming of Jesus Christ. So, Hebrews chapter 11 and reading verses 1 and 2. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. Amen. And so far, God's holy word. The Christian life is a life of faith. Faith is the instrument by which we receive the benefits of Christ's saving work. Now, as we've seen a number of times, and we see again this morning, the author of Hebrews knows that if his readers are to enter into eternal life, it will be through the possession and exercise of faith in Jesus Christ. We saw that clearly most recently in the previous section. Hebrews 10 verse 39, part of the passage we considered last Lord's Day morning, where the author says, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And so, it is through faith in Christ, by believing in Him, and what He has done in life and death, that we are saved. And it is through the lack of such faith, the want of such faith, as our forefathers would have put it, want or lack of faith in Christ, that all unbelieving are ultimately lost and perish. John Owen, great Puritan, put it like this, quote, 
It is faith alone, which from the beginning of the world, in all ages, under all dispensations of divine grace, hath been the only principle in the church of living unto God, of obtaining the promises, of inheriting life eternal, and doth continue so to be until the consummation of all things. He goes on to say, quote, Spiritual life is by faith and victory and perseverance and salvation. So they were from the beginning. End quote. Now, before we begin to uh, the detailed exposition of Hebrews chapter 11, we need to take time this morning just to step back for a few moments and look at the overall background of the chapter and how it connects to the rest of the book. Uh, so often, and this might be your experience this morning, uh, as it's been mine in the past, we tend to jump straight into Hebrews 11, a great chapter of faith. And uh, even as we do so, we may be aware, of course, it's a, a chapter in the middle of a book, but we somewhat forget, or at least neglect, to make connection. The ten chapters went before this, and that there are uh, at least uh, there are two more chapters to follow it. And so, uh, even as we were thinking in our Sunday school hour in a different context, we ought not to do with chapter 11 what many in the church sadly do with individual verses. We don't just pull chapter 11 out as if the rest of the book of Hebrews does not exist. And so, to help us do that, even as we come to it in a consecutive exposition, we're just going to think for a few moments about the chapter as a whole before we start proceeding through the sections and how it connects to the rest of the book. So, if you've taken some notes, I put this under, we're still in the introduction, but under a, a heading of necessary background in Hebrews 11. Well, as I've said, Hebrews 11 is a very well-known chapter in the Bible. Many Christians view it as a display of the heroes of faith. Perhaps uh, we would call it reverently and properly, but uh, the hall of famous uh, of, of the faith. Um, it's a display of such heroes whose assurance and confidence for which they were commended, believers then are to copy and follow. So many people as it were, come. That's their approach to Hebrews chapter 11. Now, we need to say the author of Hebrews does indeed exhort Christians, believers, to imitate the persevering faith of these Old Testament saints. Though he does not focus on that here, he said that previously back in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, where he says, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, be but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So it is certainly a biblical theme of the book of Hebrews of imitation, of copying. But as we come to Hebrews chapter 11, it's important to note that that is not the primary concern of the author as he writes Hebrews 11. 
We might say it is a secondary implication of the text because he's already said that back in Hebrews 6, but it's not his primary concern here. Now, I want to take a moment or two just to mention something generally here um, that, that often we can fall into as Christians as we read the Scriptures. Just because something is biblically true does not mean that is the concern of a particular author in a particular book in a particular chapter or even in a particular verse. And certainly as we come to study um, parts of the Bible, whether we work through books and chapters or however we do it, and certainly as the church through its ordained elders preach through the Bible, consecutively, expositionally, just because a certain truth is biblically true does not mean that's what this passage is saying. And there can be a great danger, particularly if you just get word association and connection. We very quickly go, well, I know it's true over there. Therefore, that's what it is saying here and is the great concern and priority of the author here. So we need to keep that in our, in our minds. Certainly, the author believes and exhorts um, the great principle that Paul would expound to the churches. These things were written for your instruction, and therefore be imitators of those who went before you, particularly in his context, the Old Testament saints. The author of Hebrews is not denying that, but as we ho I hope you will see, as we come to Hebrews 11, that's not his prime concern here. Here in Hebrews, Hebrews 11, the author presents the Old Testament believers first and foremost as those who have received the revelation of God. They are recipients of divine testimony. Well, testimony about what? Revelation concerning what? Well, the coming future realities, the great fulfilling of God's purpose in sending the seed of the woman, in the coming of His anointed one, the Messiah, and through His life and death to save all those who would trust in Him and bring them into the fullness of blessing of that which He and the other biblical authors called the age to come, the consummation of all things, the blessings of the glory of heaven, eternal life in Jesus Christ. He says it was by faith that the people of old, as he calls them, verse 2, acted as the means, the instruments of such redemptive revelation from God. And hence, as we get to chapter 12, when they are called witnesses, they are witnesses to that truth. Picture the court scene. When someone's called as witness, they testify to something, don't they? The reality of something. Was this so? Yes, says the witness, or no, says the witness. That's how the saints of old here are being portrayed. Now, as we think of that context then, then Hebrews 11 bears directly on what the author has said throughout the book thus far, and in particular concerning his understanding of the nature and central theme of all of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, that it is an unfolding, it is connected revelation of God. That's what the Scriptures are. 
They're not just a collection of stories. It is God progressively, if you like the technical word, it's called organic. It just means it's connected. It's not just a bit of this and a bit of that and a bit of the other. A progressive, organic or connected revelation of God's purpose to save His people from their sins. Sometimes people say, that's just heavy theology. Well, it is, but it's a very simple um, idea to grasp at least in its definition, isn't it? Um, So many years ago, we taught this even as a class to our children, the children's Sunday school. Some who may be a little old for children's Sunday school, you may be upstairs these days, but you may recall that. The series was the story of redemption, that all through Scripture, that's what Scripture is all about, God's progressive unfolding. It's connected all the way through. You can connect the dots um, through all the books from Genesis through to Revelation. And so here then, the author in Hebrews, Hebrews 11, witnesses that the to these readers to whom he is writing, to the recipients, how does he connect that general principle? That's what all of Scripture is about, Old Testament and New Testament. How does he apply that? Somebody's saying, well, that's all good theology, but where's the application? Well, here's how the author applies that principle. He says, if you understand the revelation of God progressively unfolded, but standing where you stand on this side of the coming of Jesus Christ, incarnation, life, death, resurrection, ascension, which you are, that's where you are, then you cannot reject the Christ and turn back to Old Testament worship. You can't reject the reality that has now come and go back to the types and shadows. If you understand the revelation as God has progressively unfolded it, yes, by way of promise, in type and shadow under the Old Covenant, but in reality in the coming of Christ and now in the New Covenant, then how can you think of returning is what he's saying to them. And he says to us, why would you even think about that? if you understand how these things fit together. And so if you have looked at your bulletin already this morning, you'll see something very unusual. Now, we don't normally have two summaries under a sermon. And you may have thought, is there a printing error? Did uh, uh, Jeff miss this or whoever checks it, whatever? The answer is no. There's deliberately two summaries. One, to say then, what is all of Hebrews chapter 11 about? And then as we come to our text, verses 1 and 2 this morning, what's the summary of that within the big picture? So Hebrews chapter 11, what's it all about? Well, here the author presents Old Testament believers as witnesses who, having received divine testimony, participated in that themselves and also pointed to that, what? These unseen, hoped-for realities which have been brought to fulfillment by Jesus Christ. That's what Hebrews 11 is all about. And therefore, as we make a beginning then in verses 1 and 2, how do we understand these opening verses? Well, here again, the author presents some aspects of the faith of these Old Testament saints. And through this faith, they received the promised 
future realities. So let's come to verses 1 and 2. We're going to consider these under four headings. First of all, a characterized faith. Secondly, divine testimony. Thirdly, testifying saints. And lastly, unseen things. So first of all then, characterized faith, verse 1. Now if you read verse 1 very carefully, and sometimes we have to um, force ourselves to do it because this is a very familiar verse to many of us, and so we read it very quickly. But as we read it very carefully, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. What we see here is, it is what is called a parallel statement. Conviction is used as a term which explains and expands upon the meaning of assurance. Now, faith is the assurance of things. It's the conviction of things not seen. Those two words, and we'll talk more about those two words in a moment, but they are supposed to explain one another, to help us understand. They are connected. They're parallel. And so, just as we see the other two phrases are parallel too, things hoped for and things not seen. They're talking about the same thing. And uh, the author here has a very deliberate purpose in putting it this way to help us understand. So we begin with the first two terms that are parallel, conviction and assurance here as they are rendered in the ESV. We're going to start with the second word first. And you might say, well, that's a little odd, but there is a reason for doing that. When we think about this word here that's rendered conviction, uh, when you go and look it up in uh, your dictionaries, um, particularly uh, a theological um, dictionary and uh, a Greek dictionary for the original word, um, it has a simpler range of meanings, and that's always more helpful to start with small and then go to what is larger. Um, so that's why we're starting with this word first. Um, as we define that then and understand that, then that brings light and help us to understand the second word, which we come to first in verse 1, this word rendered assurance. So, what does this word conviction mean? Now, let me make an appeal this morning. You may say, look, I'm already lost. Uh, so let's, we're in verse 1. We're looking at two words. And you may say, why is it important to know what these things mean? Well, let me try and say this as um, clearly and as lovingly as I can, if we are not concerned to understand what the words mean before us in the text, how can we claim then to understand what the meaning of the verse is? It's as simple as that. And sometimes, as I made reference in Sunday School Hour, um, the Scripture is harder to understand in some place or other. We've got to work harder and be willing to do so. And I can't just say, I just can't be bothered with that. I don't want that. Just tell me what it means. Well, at least we're going to say to you this morning, we can't tell you what it means until we do this work first. And it comes down to that. So, let's buckle ourselves in and do a little bit of uh, work this morning with our text. The word here that's rendered conviction most often has the idea of disproof of something, an argument or a charge that's been brought. 
Uh, and then from that idea, it moves on to the idea of the examination of evidence. And then even broader than that, to speak of evidence itself, uh, the proof of something itself. Now, if you want to look up all that detail, and I thought I can't do this in, a, in the midst of the sermon, otherwise I think everybody would uh, totally just go to sleep. Um, one of the best uh, Greek-English dictionaries, uh, Bauer, Danker, Arndt, and Gingrich, it's this thick like most good dictionaries are. But if you don't really kind of track with me on this or you don't agree with me on this, I just appeal, go and look it up. Um, we're all dependent to some measure in these things of definition and words um, it's become very popular in our times to say, you know what, I just put my own definition on words. Um, that's our postmodern times. Um, but words do mean things. They mean something very specific. And that's why we have dictionaries to define those things so that we're all talking about the same thing. So BDAG, as it's called, Bauer, Danker, Arndt, and Gingrich. Um, if you want to go and look it up, you can. Uh, don't just take my word for it. But this is what the word means. Disproof of something, pointing then to the idea of examination of evidence and even to the idea of the evidence itself. What it never means, and you can look through any dictionary of uh, Greek, English, um, not just Bauer, um, uh, various other uh, dictionaries, it never means an idea of some subjective uh, response to uh, something that's stated as evidence. It's nothing to do with mental certainty, as it were, in our minds, um, or uh, with regard to really this word that's been rendered very often in modern translations, conviction. Um, you will find that in a lot of modern translations. It may be in, in the copy you've got in front of you this morning. Certainly that's what the ESV puts it as, New American Standard, uh, even Revised Standard Version. Um, but, um, and this is uh, sometimes the case, and that's why it's good to have our many different English translations, um, better translation um, actually comes from an older translation, the King James and the New King James. If you've got that in front of you, you will see it is a different word here. It says, now faith is the evidence of things not seen. The evidence of things not seen. And that is a better rendering of this word. Um, just in case you think, well, you know, do pastors just get to pick the translation they want to make the point they want in their sermons? Well, as we talked about in Sunday school, the church reads the Scriptures with the church. Let me just cite one great example from way before us that the church has considered uh, this to be a better word. Uh, you may know of church father John Chrysostom, great preacher, of the early centuries. Uh, so wonderful a preacher. He was called John the Golden Mouth. The people considered his preaching was like drops of gold. John Chrysostom. John Chrysostom says this on Hebrews 11.1. 1, Goodness, what a statement when he says evidence of things. That's how John Chrysostom read Hebrews 11.1. 1. For we speak of evidence for things which are perfectly evident, he says. It's a revelation of things evident. This is evidence to the truth. So, that's the first statement, the evidence of things not seen. Now, let's come to our other word, assurance, in verse 1. Uh, the word rendered there, assurance, has a wider range of meanings, for sure, than the first one. Uh, 
it was often used, as we say, metaphorically, not literally, but metaphorically, to refer to real substance of something, the essence of what a thing is. Uh, sometimes uh, in theology they talked about the being of something, uh, and they used this word that's rendered here, assurance. Um, in contrast, if you're contrasting something that was actual and real versus something that was just an appearance, an outward appearance, but there was no substance to it, then this was the word they used for the actual real thing, right? Um, and so, uh, this word here is, is really important. And again, um, to, to kind of anchor, well, how can we say this? Then, the usage of this word here to mean something essentially, um, its reality, its substance, is exactly and without any um, uh, debate. Earlier in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, um, no scholars, commentators, disagree that in Hebrews 1 verse 3, where the author talks about the Son being the exact imprint of what? He says the divine. There they translate it nature. Um, that's the ESV and New American Standard. Uh, if you turn to the NIV, it talks about the imprint of the divine being or His very being. Um, and uh, even in the Revised Standard Version, Hebrews 1.3, the exact imprint of His person. It's something of the actuality, the reality, the essence. Um, well, that's the way in which the author is using it here in Hebrews 11.1.2. 1, um, and so, as we just, even very quickly as we've done there, and you can do a lot more work on this if you so desire, just looking at the meaning of these words, um, it leads us to conclude um, that assurance here, um, as it is written in Hebrews uh, 11, uh, 1, and uh, the word of um, conviction is, is perhaps not the clearest uh, that we can have. Um, better uh, for it to be rendered uh, again um, King James, New King James, uh, writes it as, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Um, so, uh, that's how we're going to proceed. Uh, I hope I've defended why we're doing that, um, because it, it's significant and important for then how you read the rest of Hebrews 1 and uh, Hebrews 11, 1 and 2. So, let me say it again. If you've got a, one of those translations in front of you, it's easy. It's right in front of you. Um, but it's best rendered now. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. All right. So, now we're in a position to think about the verse altogether. So, what is Hebrews 11, 1 talking about? Even if you haven't tracked, and I know for some of our children, you might have not tracked all the argument of that. Um, what is verse 1 telling us? Well, it's giving us what we call a characterization of some of the key aspects of faith. It's not trying to talk ex um, uh, 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 in a way that tells us everything about faith. It's not comprehensive as a definition. The author here is not saying, now, let me tell you what faith is in a comprehensive 
um, uh, way that does not exclude anything that faith can, can, can be about. That's again, um, in other places, particularly Paul does a lot of that in his epistles, but that's not what the author is doing here. He's not seeking to give you a full and complete definition of faith. Rather, he's showing some aspects of faith that are relevant from these Old Testament believers so that, remember his great purpose, so he says, so don't turn away from Christ and go back to the Old Testament shadows. Um, again, let me defend that if you, if you don't think that's persuasive. Um, the author of the Hebrews is not the only biblical author to do this. Um, Remember what we're contrasting here. Characterization is not some exhaustive definition. It's bringing out some certain key features. Um, James does exactly the same thing in his letter. James 1.27. He says this, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, the care for needy persons and the avoidance of sin is not an exhaustive definition of pure and undefiled religion, is it, biblically? It certainly involves that, and that's why James speaks to that in the context of where he is in James chapter 1. But he's not see you see, he's not seeking to give you a full and exhaustive explanation of what is pure and undefiled religion. It's not as if um, the, the Bible is written like a systematic theological textbook. So here's a topic, and here I'm going to tell you everything that the Bible says about this. Um, you find books like that, Systematic Theologies. Burkhoff is a very well-known example in the Reformed tradition. And you find that's exactly how Burkhoff, as an author, organizes his book. Okay, I'm going to tell you about faith here. I'm going to tell you about uh, godliness here. I'm going to tell you about God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And he lists everything that the Bible tells you about that in that chapter. But you see, the biblical authors are not writing a textbook of systematic theology. James doesn't do that here. And I don't think anybody would want to argue that what James says in 127 is an exhaustive definition of pure and undefiled religion. If that's the case there, then we ought not to be disturbed that the author to the Hebrews is doing something very similar in Hebrews 11.1. 1. Calvin, again, let me cite Calvin, um, not because Calvin is infallible, but Calvin uh, is a respected scholar, pastor, teacher of uh, the church. He says this, quote, It is hence also evident that greatly mistaken are they who think that an exact definition of faith is given here. And this is his commentary on 11, Hebrews 11.1. 1. For the apostle does not speak here of the whole of what faith is, but selects that part of it which was suitable to his purpose, even that it has patience ever connected with it. End quote. So, again, what is, what is going on here? Well, the author here in chapter 11 is not directly addressing faith to give a comprehensive definition of it, but rather he's dealing with some particular aspects of faith, specifically persevering in faith. And he's addressing here that persevering faith of the Old Testament saints, and as that, in that perseverance, they testify to those who come after them as the great cloud of witnesses, Hebrews 
So how might we sum this up? Well, the author here points to the faith of the Old Testament's witnesses who understood God had given them understanding of the revelation as it was first given to them, of the promises, in particular of that unseen future reality. And then there were those who persevered in faith in those promises and testified to the reality of that to those who would come after them. Uh, that connects us with Hebrews 10, 36 through 39 as he comes to a Hebrews 11, 1. I don't know if you've ever kind of wondered why, why was he talking about the necessity? You have need to endure, you remember from last week. And then Hebrews 11.1 1 comes, now faith is. Well, what's the connection between those two things? Um, it's not as if the author of Hebrews, you know, was kind of writing his novel over many weeks and months and years and has kind of finished something and then the scene totally changes to something purely unrelated. There's a reason why he talks about the characterization of faith here, particularly the perseverance of faith, when he's just said, now you need to endure and persevere, right, in, verse, in verses 36 through 39. Well, then that brings us in the second place then to this divine testimony, verse 2, this divine testimony. Um, the key uh, word here, it's a phrase in our English translation in verse 2, is receive their commendation, ESV. Uh, sometimes it's rendered receive, define approval, New American Standard, or were commended, uh, again, NIV. Now, again, we have to do some dictionary work here. What do words mean? Um, whilst it's true that this word can signify a positive testimony about someone, um, to approve, to praise, that is a legitimate um, range of meaning for this word. You find that, for example, Acts chapter 6, verse 3. Um, you never find that meaning in the book of Hebrews where the author uses this word. Uh, he uses it quite frequently. Again, if you want to look up and where we've been previously, Hebrews 7, verse 8, Hebrews 10, verse 15, here, 11, verse 2, moving forward, 11, verse 4, twice he uses that word there, and then verses 5 and 9. Um, here specifically in Hebrews 11 verse 2, the straightforward, simple meaning uh, as he uses it consistently through, through his book in Hebrews is to solemnly attest or to witness to the reality or the truth of something. So again, the, the idea here is of testimony, attestation if you like, big words. Um, to testify to something, to bear witness to something. Um, of course, verse 2 is connected to verse 1. Again, remember, we don't just pick verses out and leave them in isolation. That's obvious in the text because the author himself here connects verse 2 to verse 1, doesn't he? He says, four. Four. Why is verse 1 true? Well, because of this, of what he says in verse 2. So the Old Testament saints believed and testified to the reality and evidence of the promised future things. For what did that faith of theirs rest on? Well, it didn't rest on some subjective approval of themselves, did it? Rather, it rested upon that revelation that they had first received. That's what he says here. 
Again, for by it, that is their faith, the people of old, better rendered, received testimony. That's how it ought to be rendered. Again, um, it may seem that uh, I'm citing more than I usually do, King James and New King James, but uh, the older translation here is better. Uh, King James, Hebrews 11:12. For by it the elders obtained a good report. Um, the good is a, an addition to smooth out the translation. There's no word in the original for good. So by it, the elders obtained a report is literally what the Greek says. Um, again, smoothed out perhaps a little more by the new King James, for by it the elders obtained, again, good is there to smooth, that, that word is not in the original, um, they obtained a testimony, it says in the new King James. Um, let me cite New Testament uh, professor uh, Steve Ball, I think, captures it well here. He says, quote, For in connection with their faith, God testified to them of the invisible things of their hope to these saints of old. So that's the testimony here of verse 2. Well, consequently then, as we come to our third point, they become testifying saints. Having received the testimony of God, the revelation of God to which God Himself, you remember, earlier in the book of Hebrews, gave His solemn oath. As I was talking with somebody earlier in the week, God didn't do that because His Word wasn't reliable. His oath is added because of our weakness and uh, our uh, often failure to believe. So God added that which could not uh, be any stronger by way of witness, not a human witness, but God Himself testifying to His own Word. Having received that then, these Old Testament saints became those who witnessed, testified to those who came after them. And so we see here the faith of the Old Testament saints rested upon God's promise given to them in time and space, progressively unfolded, and we'll see that as we start to come to the details, as we come to Abel and Noah and Abraham and so on and so on. Um, but as the faith rested upon God's promise, what was that promise? It was solemn testimony of God, wasn't it? That this is true. This is substance of reality. You can't see it yet, but it is going to come. Come in the advent of Jesus Christ and come fully and finally and completely in purpose at the second coming of Jesus Christ. God's covenantal oath is added to this, as we read back in chapter 6, verses 13 through 18. And so, on account of that, when we get to Hebrews chapter 12, that's why he describes them as a cloud of witnesses. That's what they're doing here. That's the purpose of how he considers these Old Testament saints. Now, that doesn't mean that's everything you can say about the Old Testament church and the function of the Old Testament saints, but that's what he's saying here about them. That's what's important. Because notice, and this is very significant, the author of Hebrews does not call the Old Testament saints here examples. He does back in Hebrews chapter 6, and that's why we should say they are examples to us. But here he does not, does he? What does he call them? Well, in the connection of the context, when he gets to Hebrews chapter 12, he calls them witnesses. Witnesses, not examples. Because his first and foremost purpose here 
is that we might listen to their testimony. And so, strengthen faith and persevere ourselves in that faith. And so, first and foremost here, they are testifying saints in this passage, and that's we need to see clearly. One commentator puts it like this. He says, quote, It is a mistake to think of the word witness in the phrase cloud of witnesses as saying that the believers of Hebrews 11 are like some mere spectators who watch us as we run our race. Rather, they are those who actively bear testimony to us as witnesses. End quote. You see the difference of the picture. Uh, you may have heard this uh, way of interpreting this passage, as I certainly did in my younger days, that when we get to Hebrews 12, these witnesses, it's like us running the race, right, in the Olympics, and all the Old Testament saints are in the kind of uh, uh, the stands watching us and cheering us on and saying, well, the Lord helped us to persevere, so you persevere. And uh, like we say in the physical realm, well, you know, sometimes the sprinter runs a little faster when all of the home country is rooting for their man, right, in the hundred meters. You know, somehow he can shave a few hundredths of a second off his, his best performance because they're all in the stands. He never quite gets that when he's in practice, right? He has to practice all the months in the cold and wet and everything else. But, you know, when that's, that stadium is empty and he's just running on the track, never gets that performance. Well, often that's how this is presented. You know, the Old Testament saints are in these stands and they're kind of cheering us on, you know, uh, persevere in the faith. Um, that's not what the text says. The text here calls them witnesses. Witnesses. Um, not cheerers, not supporters. Um, the Greek has words for that. If the author had wanted to say that, he could have said that. He did not. Um, it's the idea of somebody attesting to something and, and bearing witness to the reality of it. Uh, and so here, as we'll come through Hebrews 11, um, then we see the faith of these Old Testament saints that eventually led them um, into the reality, um, not consummately yet. The author of the Hebrews will say right at the end of Hebrews 11, Steve very helpfully helped us with that on Wednesday evening to say, you know, they weren't going to get the consummate blessing before all the rest of us, as the author will say, will participate in that too. That's God's purpose. It will be all of us together in the consummation, uh, but they entered into it by faith to begin in the already but not yet enjoyment of it. And as they did that, as they pointed to the one who was the great object of that faith, the one who the author in next chapter will call the great pioneer and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ Himself, Hebrews 12.2, then they are testifying of that to us. Maybe you're still not convinced. Then let me just give you a preview of next Lord's Day morning. Hebrews 11.4. What does the author call Abel? He speaks of one who is, though who is yet dead, but still what? Speaks. Speaks to us. Again, a word not of just being an example. Not a word of just being the cheerleader in the stands but one who bears witness, speaks of that which he himself 
by God's grace, had heard, believed, and would have others believe too. Though dead, yet still speaks. Now, this understanding, this way of interpreting this passage um, is consistent, and therefore it's critical to see that it is consistent with the rest of the epistle to the Hebrews, um, particularly in terms of how the author to the Hebrews sees God's purpose in salvation, in His great redemption, and as I said earlier, between the connectivity of the Old Testament and the New Testament, Old Covenant and New Covenant. Um, whilst there are distinctions to be properly made, types and shadows, fulfilled reality, Old Testament, New Testament, Old Covenant, New Covenant, yet we must see there is continuity as well as distinction. And that's critical. And we see that here in how the author treats Hebrews 11. Because this chapter shows that the author regards the whole of the Old Testament as a witness to the future realities that are introduced by Christ, as he said in Hebrews 9.26, at the consummation of the ages. He connects these two inseparably. And that cannot be denied. And all of that is grounded in the fact that God Himself for first bore witness, first revealed these things, beginning in Genesis 3.15 and all the way through the Old Testament. That's what we taught our children, and rightly so. There is one story of redemption throughout all of Scripture, and the author to the Hebrews illustrates that here in his teaching to his hearers. So, how might we summarize this part, uh, point three here, of testifying saints? Well, the chapter, Hebrews 11, asserts that believing, uh, the believing saints uh, of the old covenant, as well as ourselves, are involved in this important activity of bearing testimony to what is believed. How is that done? It's done by word and deed. Modern commentator known to some of us, Howell Jones, you may know of his very helpful commentary, small, short, very accessible, in the um, uh, Let's, uh, Let's Study series, Banner of Truth. We have a copy in our library. Let me commend it to you. But he says this concerning uh, this matter, quote, all those who have died and whose lives are recorded in Old Testament Scripture speak to those who live in Christian times with the voice of God. Perhaps I should have just read Howell Jones 30 minutes ago, and maybe it would have been much clearer. Um, but I think you have to do the detailed work to come to that conclusion. But he says it so well, I thought, I'm just going to cite him. There's no better way of saying it. Let me say it again, quote, All those who have died and whose lives are recorded in Old Testament Scripture speak to those who live in Christian times with the voice of God. And that's what the author of Hebrews is saying here, uh, both individually as Old Covenant saints and the idea of it ongoing now, particularly in the New Covenant, as the church continuing to bear witness to an unbelieving world. That's our great function as the church under the Great Commission, to bear testimony to the truth as it is in Jesus. 
Well, let's come to the fourth point and much briefer, uh, unseen things as we conclude this morning, unseen things. We've been thinking of the content of the Old Testament saints witness here in Hebrews 11 um, as the realities of the world to come. We can't see them with physical eyes this morning, but we see them with the eye of the faith. They are real. Um, we'll see this again and again and in much more detail as we go through Hebrews 11. Um, but as we conclude, let me just preview this as we see it from these summary phrases here in our text this morning, particularly back in verse 1. Because faith places us, as one commentator would say, into vital contact, into living contact with the reality and the evidence of things hoped for and things not seen. And so, as I've argued in the earlier part of the sermon, this is not kind of the subjective response like my assurance and conviction. This is the external testimony, first of all from God and then onward through the saints the reality and evidence of what? The things hoped for and things not seen. Now, why are they unseen? Might we say, well, we're not really sure that they exist then? That's often our experience in this world, isn't it? If I can't see it, um, I might remain healthily skeptical of something. And often people put it that way, don't they, in a, in a very modern way of talking. Well, until I see it with my very eyes. Remember somebody in the Bible who had that approach? Thomas, until I see it myself, I won't believe it. But the Bible speaks about the reality of things not yet seen, and that's what we have here. Again, to come to the immediate context, when we come to Noah, what does the author say here? Uh, Noah was warned with regard to things not yet seen. Yet they were a reality. They were coming, weren't they? The great flood judgment. Just because people couldn't see it raining yet and seeing the waters of the deep coming up and the flood uh, barriers which God had previously put in place to restrain such waters does not mean it was not real. And the author says that here. He says it in a different connection again, uses exactly the same kind of reasoning and word back in Hebrews 3. Uh, remember how he spoke of Moses, Hebrews 3 verse 5, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to do what? Was Mo Moses first and principally here in Hebrews 3 again an example or a cheerleader? No, to testify, the text says, Hebrews 3 verse 5, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Get both ideas again consistently throughout the book. He's testifying. It's the evidence, but it's of things that are later, not yet seen, unseen things at present. And so Moses, like all of the Old Testament saints, believing, professing, part of the people of God, was a witness to the future redemptive events that were coming in God's plan and purpose. And that's what we see in all Hebrews 11. So we've got to keep in mind, maybe for a few weeks I might keep that summary of the whole chapter for us in the bulletin, just so it keeps us in our mind as we go through the particulars now, as we start to go through uh, Abel, Noah, Abraham, and so forth. 
What's the so what here of all of this? Well, first so what is we need to have a clear understanding of what the Word of God says. And I trust that is of interest to you. And you don't say, well, that was all heavy. And so what would I believe this? But equally important is this. Will you receive that testimony this morning? The testimony that comes from the Old Testament saints, because it came first from God Himself, and as is continually testified to by the church of the Lord Jesus Christ today. Whoever you are here this morning, will you receive that truth? And receiving that truth means you will trust in no one else but Jesus Christ alone to save you from your sins. That's what that testimony is all about. And in the end, I'm not so much concerned that, you know, you can turn to BDAG and look up with its confidence or evidence and all of that. I'm concerned that you understand that this is about the testimony of the truth of God in Jesus Christ, and you believe that so that you are saved from the coming wrath. Remember, that's what the author said back at the end of chapter 10. That's what this is all about. Because if you don't have that, then you will perish. You will perish. Will you receive that this morning? The truth that the only way for you to be saved, the only name given unto heaven by which men, women, boys, and girls are saved, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's what the great concern is here. And then final application, if you have received that testimony, give thanks for the truth that it gives to you of one who is your Savior, who is a complete Savior. And though things in their fullness of consummation is yet unseen, you see by faith. That's why the best thing that we can ever do in all of the pilgrim walk with all the trials and tribulations is eyes upwards and forwards. It will not help us to look down or to look back. Backwards was particularly the concern of the author here, remember. You can't go back. It was appropriate at the time, but it always pointed forwards. What are we to do as the professing people of God who say we've received this testimony? Eyes upwards, forwards to the great consummation when on that last great day the skies will be split and will be the blinding glory of the coming of Jesus Christ, the unseen and yet glorious reality. Having received that then, having believed that, having been strengthened by that, will we as the church then testify to that in our day and generation? Not that the Scripture is going to be written that says this about us in the same way it was said about the Old Testament saints. Different time, different purpose. But could it be written by anyone, even by human recording, of just the testimony of man, of the church in Placerville in 2024 were those like those who had gone before them who testified Gladly, courageously perhaps, necessarily, boldly, joyfully, that this is the truth 
as it is in Jesus. May God so help us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank You for the great revelation and testimony that You have revealed down through the ages, even to Your Old Testament saints of old, that they themselves were enabled to embrace by faith and then testify to themselves to the generations that were to come. Grant us, O Lord, to receive such testimony as You have had it inscripturated in Your Word before us this morning. And grant, having embraced it, that we too might have that great desire to give testimony ourselves by Your grace to the great truth that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners, of whom, as Paul testified, I am the greatest. Lord, help us to glory in Your wonderful salvation and grant us to bear faithful witness and testimony to You. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We turn again to our hymnals and to hymn number 262, God in the Gospel of His Son. Please rise to sing if you are able.
people of God receive the Lord's blessing in his benediction. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Go in the Lord's mercy and peace.